Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. I speak today to Neil Young, MD of Elixir Energy. They're an ASX company chasing gas in Mongolia. If you want our thoughts and opinions on that conversation, and indeed the company itself, you can get that at cruxinvestor.com forward slash club. You can also find their company reports, commentary from market experts from around the world, training courses, summaries of other interviews that we've done. And of course, there's a huge thriving community of investors sharing their thoughts and ideas with each other. And if you go now, there's a seven-day free trial. Neil, how are you doing, sir? I'm very well, thank you. Pleased to be joining you for the first time. Yeah, first time we've spoken, first time we've heard this story. I'm excited about it. So where in the world are you? So I'm in Adelaide, Australia. Ah, fantastic. And how is life down there? Um, Well, I don't want to annoy people too much, but it's actually pretty good. I mean, we've been back to the office for a number of months. We can go to the pub without closing at 10 o'clock. We can go to restaurants. um, And I'm even flying to Sydney tomorrow for the first time uh, on a plane since early February. So that'll It'll be like being a school child going on holidays again. Oh, I bet, I bet. Well, that's fantastic. Yeah, we're, we're going to second lockdown here just for for, mm. for our sins. But you, you sound like, uh, you don't sound like much of a local. So where are you actually from? So I'm from Aberdeen in Scotland originally, but I've lived in Australia for around 25 years. So certainly would consider myself a local, even though the accent still bears a vague Scotish burr. It, it does rather, it does rather. You got your Australian citizenship. Uh, many years ago, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a proud moment for my father. He's Irish, and he uh, he got a yeah. citizenship, and he's a, and now he's a, a full-on Aussie. Um, right. Well, we better get into this. We're going to hear the Alexia uh, Energy story, but um, before we do, can you kick off? Give us that one-minute overview for people who have not heard the story before. Okay, so Alexia Energy is listed on the Australian Stock Exchange. It's got a, a single uh, focus. That's exploring for gas in Mongolia just north of the border with China. And uh, China, for those who don't know, is the world's largest importer of energy in multiple forms, including gas. So we felt it was a pretty good location to look for it. Fantastic. Okay. Um, There's a few outliers I want to deal with um, first, because again, uh, oil and gas, even gas, has not been a very sort of sexy investment proposition for the last few years. And I think people are starting to look at it again. So what's the state of the the market and why is this a good time to be getting into gas investment? Well, clearly the, the price of oil and, and gas, which is often linked to oil, have uh, are low just now uh, due to COVID. And uh, there was an expectation of bouncing back at some point. But I'd, I'd like to move from oil and emphasize gas and uh, uh, for those in the UK, um, you'd have seen BP recently released their annual energy outlook, which is a very closely followed document in the world of energy um, and BP's view. And it's by far the most bearish view on energy in, in the conventional oil and gas sector was that oil demand has peaked, but the gas demand won't peak for, for another 15 or 20 years. And that the, the locale where the gas demand will be at its highest and the best growth trajectory will be in Asia generally and, and China specifically. Okay, so th- that's interesting because I think people haven't really pay, paid attention to gas specifically for, for some time. You've decided to go and hunt gas in Mongolia. Now, we've had a few companies on, yeah. Australian companies on recently who have tried and given up the ghost uh, with in regards to doing business in Mongolia. How long have you been operating there? So I personally went there for the first time nearly 10 years ago. 
Um, I know the country pretty well. Uh, we obtained the first license of our type in the country, which meant it took a long time of working with uh, the government or governments there because they've got a democracy and power changes hands frequently. Um, so that was quite a lengthy process, but one that was very valuable in building up relationships um, which are enduring and actually are really benefiting us just now in this time of COVID because we can still operate with our local team, local contractors, people that we know and trust over a considerable period. So we haven't just blown in and done a deal and then uh, wonder how we're actually going to go and deliver on it. Okay, so talk to us about the permitting and licensing process over there. At at the moment you're doing, well, reading about doing TD, um, presumably there's a lot more that you're going to need to do going forward. So what is the process? Is it how much does it cost? How long does it take? What are the restrictions? So the, the form of the license is, is a common one in the developing world, and that is called a production sharing contract or a PSC. It's basically just a device that um, determines how taxes are paid um, and endures for a long time. Um, uh, gas is less profitable than oil normally, so the fiscal terms are accordingly more favorable to the investor um, for us. Uh, we own 100% of that. We don't have any um, pesky partners. There is no process for a government um, entity to back in, as, as occurs in, for instance, uh, some other countries like, like China or Indonesia. And so we've really got a strong degree of, of freedom of operation to pursue exploration um, uh, in what we hope is a world's best practice form, which um, we've taken from Australia and uh, imparting that knowledge uh, to Mongolia. We, uh, we use local subcontractors because one of the key benefits of coal seam gas or coal bed methane, depending on what you call it, it really depends on where you are, is that it's low cost. We're not drilling wells thousands of meters deep. We're drilling wells hundreds of meters deep. That means that we can use minerals rigs rather than expensive oil rigs. Uh, Mongolia's got an, an extensive uh, mineral sector. And so the capability to drill what we want to do already exists in local firms, um, and that is even more important in this time of COVID where importing people is impossible, uh, importing equipment is hard. And indeed, earlier this year, we, we trialed um, supervising a particular test in a well with some people in Brisbane who the previous year flew out to Mongolia to supervise the test, but this year managed to do it online. Um, this was in the Gobi Desert, which have, will provide images of, of camels and, and dunes. But in reality, you can get Wi-Fi there and uh, you put a satellite dish up, you can drive there. And it's uh, it's, it's pretty uh, uh, good operating environment, um, not only for communication, but for even for weather. We can we can operate all year round there. And then going to your question on, on cost, um, these are shallow wells, as I say. These are Mongolian subcontractors, not, not American ones, so they, they, are, they are cheaper. And what we are, are, are finding is that coal seam gas or coal bed methane is by far one of the cheapest forms of gas exploration. We can spend hundreds of thousands on a well, not millions or tens of millions on a well. And so uh, we have a lot of bang for our buck. Um, Investors have liked that. I mean, you mentioned that it's been a bit of an unloved sector, but we've done 
pretty well this year. We we got whacked by COVID, as everybody did in in the, the dull days of March. We we raised money then um, at two cents, and now we're trading at thirteen fourteen cents. And and of course, uh, uh, we you always expect me to say we've got a long long way to go um, over and beyond that. But you know, we have delivered, um, and we we can believe we can continue to do so. Okay. Um- you actually sort of touched upon the next question, which was like, why are you in Adelaide, not in Mongolia, managing this? By saying that you're, you're able to remotely supervise a local um, uh, team that you're using there. So, um, is that the way forward? Is that the way you're going to manage this, or you know, do you actually want to be able to get back in the country? Because it's also about relationships with, um, you know, with the MRPAM, um, you know. Yeah. They need to see your face. They need to know what you're doing. You need to inform them. So what's the future look like? Um, I completely agree that in a normal um, environment, one needs to visit the ground extensively, pay respects, hear messages that you don't necessarily get um, in a Zoom call, um, and uh, uh, deal with people both locally in, in the area we operate as well as in the capital city, the regulators, as you mentioned. Um that, that's not feasible in time of COVID, but we do have an enormous bank of uh, you know, goodwill, relationship building with which to draw down upon. Um, I, I would hope to be able to go back next year, but of course that's an unknowable at this point. Uh, Mongolia has been remarkably um, efficient in managing COVID. They effectively shut their borders at the end of January. And uh, that means that there have been no community transmission uh, incidents, um, no deaths, and that's a record that they want to maintain uh, very strongly. And and accordingly, they will be cautious about reopening borders um, until there's a vaccine or or similar comfort like that. But but to repeat, we have proven that we can operate um, since February with, with distant supervision. Not only us, but but experts that we need to bring in at particular stages of a wells um, testing performance, for example. Okay, okay. So, um, should we let's get onto the asset itself that you've identified? So, for, first of all, why Mongolia? Why not Australia? I mean, the the key thing there is that the gas of all the world's commodities is by far the hardest to move. Um, so. Uh, if you're moving gold or even oil, it's fairly cheap. The, the, the percentage of the delivered price, which relates to transportation, is small. However, if you're if you're shipping gas, say from Australia, which is the world's largest producer of coal seam gas, to China, as as occurs in large volumes, then around half of the um, landed price has to pay for the cost of moving the gas there. So if you find gas in Mongolia, you are a few hundred kilometers away from China's gas infrastructure, not many, many thousands of kilometers away. You don't need to, to liquefy the gas through a freezing process. And so the actual, uh, to, to then go to the delivered price question, you've got, say, 50 cents rather than $5 of delivery costs by having local gas. Um, and the, the, the insight that the that I really had as my eureka moment as such about a decade ago was um, being told that uh, Mongolia was overtaking Australia at that point as the largest um, exporter of coal to China at that particular point in time. And they weren't doing it by boat, they were doing it by truck. So they're doing it by truck, it told me that, hey, they're they're pretty, pretty close. Um, That being the case, um, they're, they're near, they're delivering by truck and they've got coal. 
And uh, coal seam gas is naturally hosted in coal seams, which are deep below the ground. And so instance of coal uh, proximity, if, we can, if the two can come together, we, we should have a pretty valuable resource given one on the market and secondly the, the reservoirs which should be able to live with the gas. Okay so you're in, the, you're in the right part of the world and um, you've, you've got the licenses that you need or the PSC that you need for, for now. So if I look at your PowerPoint it's it's full of quite evocative language which uh, which you've got to do at this at this point you're trying to sell it so um, you know with massive potential and enormous scope and highly successful and you're giving the upside the, the you know high uh, upside of you know 7.6 TCF so it all sounds fantastic but the reality is you're just doing 2D at the moment so what's the market got excited about so we, we commenced drilling wells around a year ago and the first ones were were fairly indifferent in terms of their outcome um, the well however that we drilled in February called Nongon one um, was a significant success in the technical parameters that it measured. Um, for coal seam gas to be successful, you firstly need thick coal seams deep underneath the ground and tick. Um, they need to host gas, which they did tick, and they need to have a degree of permeability so the gas can move through the seams, and they did tick. Um, we followed that well up with further appraisal wells, and the results, certainly of the, of the first appraisal core hole, were as good, if not better, and then further appraisal, cheaper wells added to the coal volume. So what, what we have done to date with, with not a significant expenditure of dollars is de-risk that potential. Um, before we started, that's all it was. We, we thought this, this is a coal-bearing uh, basin. It should host a lot of gas. But um, to get to that 7.6 TCF number you mentioned, our independent auditors risked that very, very highly. Now, now we've shown that we can do it. And as and when we go back to those auditors, they will see that the risking parameters should change and that in the specific location of the discoveries, we have moved from theoretical resource or prospective resource to real resource, i.e. contingent resource, which is a significant path on the way to getting reserves, i.e. commercial resource. Right, but it, it, again, there's not a lot of work done there. Not the money I get is a lot cheaper to drill there. I get that. But given the land package that you've got, you, t you, you liken yeah. it to, I think, Belgium, uh, which is a sort of nice ge uh, geographic reference. But, you know, so there's a huge big land package, multiple basins, I think you're suggesting, and you've had success after, you know, a period of not having success on the permeability front um, yeah. on a couple of wells, is that, is, that really, is that really enough to suggest that this is going to be a huge success going forward? I think the, the, the key to recognize in, in the resources sector is that small guys spend years negotiating licenses, doing initial work, coming up with success. Um, but successful small guys don't aspire to being massive producers themselves. Um, our, our challenge is to bring in at the right time people with the balance sheet and capability and geopolitical skills who can give this license what it really deserves, who can, who can cross Belgium and put in tens, then hundreds of millions of dollars, not the, the single millions of dollars that we're putting in just now. And so, as you said, our, our messaging is always twofold. We're, we're a junior company. We need to tell a good story to attract interest. 
to create liquidity. Um, but we don't we don't lie when, when we're doing that because our second and more important audience is our industry peers uh, who are much larger, who will not um, believe hype, will will look at technical reality, and will come in at the right time as an, as a partner or ultimate resource developer and producer. Okay, so you, you've got two audiences. You've got your shareholders are obviously really, really pleased because the shares have increased significantly over the past three months or so. Um, but you're saying it's about putting a dress on this and showing a bit of leg to the industry partners. Um, how do you get that balance uh, in terms of how you go about spending your money and how you spend, what you spend your time doing, what data you're trying to create? Because you've had a little bit of excitement now, but for people coming in now, they've missed the boat, haven't they? Uh, well, we can believe there's considerable upside from here. And certainly the, the history of coal seam gas in Australia about 10 years ago, when, when small guys did work and big guys came in and paid a lot of money for them. And uh, there are certainly companies bought for billions, not, not merely tens and hundreds of millions where we really sit just now. Um, I mean, our land package is bigger than probably anybody had in Queensland at that time, and we believe it's better located in terms of market, albeit Mongolia is, of course, a developing nation compared to Australia. Um, so we think that upside is there. Having a 100% ownership position gives us enormous optionality, and that's something that we want to maintain um, for a period of years yet. We don't need to go and bring in a partner because we have to financially, because the expenditure is relatively uh, minor. Uh, we do have money just now, and we also anticipate um, a good cash inflow to come in at the end of this year when we have some listed options which are in the money expire. And uh, presuming that money comes in, then, then we will be able to maintain that independent position for a, a, a good period after that. And then each and every year we'll assess, you know, do we now bring in a partner or do we not? But we don't have to. And uh, we think that's a pretty good position to be in. Yeah, for sure. So how much cash have you got today? And what, and what are these um, listed options potentially worth? So we have around $3 million in just now. And the options of all exercise will bring in about another seven at year end. Okay. And what's that, what's that allow you to do? What, what's the plan with that? So that, that allows us to um, continue exploring for at least a couple of years without needing to go to anybody else. Yeah. Right. So, but, but, but how does it break down? I mean, are you doing more sort of TD? Are you going to be doing 3D? You know, how much more drilling? What, what are you, what are you so, targeting and hunting for first? So we, we, we think 3D is really something that is for the future. It's really a development tool in, in coal seam gas. So we will, we will do more 2D and we'll do more of the various types of wells that we've been doing. So uh, we, to date, have drilled um, fully tested core holes and then cheaper stratigraphic holes, which are basically there to confirm coal at depths. Next year, we will follow up with a production well um, in the area of our existing discovery, which will look to produce gas to surface. And if the flow rates from that are above a certain uh, point, then we'll have started to prove that there's reserves in the immediate area there. The seismic that we shot to date over two years has given us more exploration targets, which we will follow up this year and next. And as and when they come good, then we'll follow up with core holes and we'll follow up with production testing holes. So it's really a, a rinse and repeat process, um, starting with, with 2D. And also we drilled some wells even without seismic because we've got surface expressions of coal and indeed, that's what we drilled upon in this Nomgon uh, sub-basin area. 
successfully. So uh, it's um, a, a mixture of tools, uh, nothing too complex um, in, in oil and gas terms, certainly. That's interesting. So you, you drilled on the basis of coal expressions at surface and you, well, define successfully. When you say we, we drilled successfully, what does that mean to you? So the, the exploration, well, Nongon 1 that I mentioned earlier, it, uh, the parameters that it delivered to us when assessed against an international standard called the Petroleum Resource Management Standard, or PRMS, was, was deemed to be a discovery. I mean, it, it ticked all the necessary boxes to do that. Now, it was a localized discovery, uh, and so the immediate contingent resource you could book from that will be bounded by the area. But what it indicates also is the risking applied to making further discoveries elsewhere in, in the, the area the size of Belgium um, are, are less than they were before we had done that. And, okay, so given that your, your end goal here is to find a partner, strategic partner with the right size balance sheet um, and presumably either to farm out to them or to just use their money, I mean, how, how, in fact, how do you see that relationship um, going forward, do you want to stay involved or is it time to check out? Well, I think that would really depend upon the situation at the time. I mean, I think it's um, often dangerous for juniors to stay in too long because they want to be producers, because they're engineers or whatever. And if they have a critical financing issue, then they can lose everything. Um, handing over the whole lot is probably the optimum thing to do from a risk management perspective for shareholders. But we obviously will assess that um, from time to time. Um, interesting um, to draw upon the experience of our chairman. Um, he's pretty well known in Australia. He ran a junior coal seam gas company called QGC, and it fended off a takeover from one company, Santos, I used to work for. It brought in a strategic ally called AGL. It ultimately was bought by Britain's uh, British Gas Group. And uh, so there was a lot of... Um, uh, dealing with the optimum outcome at the time rather than falling over to the to the first uh, person who offered us a dance, offered him a dance. And right, okay. So given that's the end game and you've got your 10 million bucks, you told us how, how you're going to break that down. I mean, what sort of time frame are your very excited shareholders looking at um, for that event to happen or for you to start thinking about something like that? Well, I, I think that we would like at least another one or two years, one year absolute minimum of, of value-enhancing work that we would do ourselves. Um, in, in the background, obviously, we want COVID to, to become manageable in whatever shape or form that it does. Um, we want to see what's happening you know, geopolitically. Um, uh, China is the obvious uh, partner for us in some shape or form, but equally it could be a multinational oil and gas company who recognised that China was it when it when it comes to to gas markets. And um, so, for instance, and I'm just saying this hypothetically, Shell um, now operates the what was Richard Cotty's asset in Queensland. It, it exports coal seam gas to China in partnership with CNOC. It's one of the premium operators in the world, and it might want to replicate that somewhere else, like like where we are just now in Mongolia. As I say, that's only a hypothetical. Um, and uh, we, we will we'll see what happens. But I mentioned BP earlier. All the large um, oil and gas companies, certainly in Europe, are are rebalancing their portfolios away from oil towards gas and, and renewables. And uh, uh, that's uh, something that, that, that clearly we are focused on in terms of gas. But also, interestingly enough, where we are is a fantastic resource 
for for uh, renewables as well in terms of sun and wind. Okay. Um, and ultimately, those things could also be exported in parallel to gas where, from where we are. Okay, so with the, with the, with the relevant capex expenditure, but um, if I look at the size of the land package that you've got, um, and I'm, I'm just trying to understand the strategy and the business plan here. So I, I, I get the end yeah. game, find your partner, probably Chinese by the, by the sounds of it. You've got to, you said earlier, show them enough um, data to make it interesting for them. But with the land package you've got and the money you've got available, you're not going to be able to explore. So it, it, why are you holding on to such a land package? It's a case of, never mind the quality, feel the thickness. You know, it's 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 huge. It's it's some blue sky for the for the next partner. In which case, what are you going to what are you going to hone in on? What are you going to focus on? Just show that one of these basins has the permeability, has the the, the volume of gas in it that you you say. Um, is is that it? Is you, you just got to prove it once and and leave that the upside for them? I mean, what's the plan? Well, I, I think that the, the, the process will be replicated in quite a number of sub basins in the overall license area. Some of which will have uh, you know mature characteristics of a successful production well, and then we might, for instance, put a small scale power plant on that to to run off gas and prove that its deliverability over years works. Other ones we will uh, explore for and not find uh, gas. Uh, other ones we will, and then we'll we'll rinse and repeat the delineation, appraisal, production testing, and then potentially offtake process that we're talking about. And, and in in terms of holding onto the package, we because we you know were the original acquirers of the PSC, we have many years to go before we need to to um, start relinquishing anything or start to being worried about expiry. Um, so that's, you know, we've got at least 10 years to go before we need to start worrying about that. So we, we can hold on during that period. And well, is that what well, that's been paid up for the next 10 years or is there an annual contribution to that? The, the, the nature of production sharing contract is that there's a defined period in which you explore before you find anything. Ours is 10 years extendable for five. Um, and we're, we're less than two, less than two years in. Um, but how much more do you owe? Is that an annual payment? Okay, so we 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 have to have to pay some fees each year, which aren't particularly material on gas terms. But we also have to spend a minimum amount every year, which is very manageable. It's it's a number of millions each year. It's not tens or hundreds of millions. Okay, it, it, in oil and gas terms, it may not be a lot, but for a company with ten million or potentially ten million in cash, it it, it may be. So, for what percentage or what what is the dollar value of that each year? Okay, so so each year we have to pay two hundred and thirty thousand US dollars in in fees. So so even at our small market cap and cash balance, that's that's pretty manageable. Okay, and then and tell me about this. Uh, you talked about putting a power plant on there, kind of you know proof things up. I mean, sorry, is that a well? What type of power plant? We're talking SS LNG. Are you converting into LNG, or what are you doing? Converting into LNG is, is is an option, and there is a large vehicle fleet in the region which ships coal, as I mentioned earlier. But probably more um, easily done is to build a modular gas engine-based um, power plant, which can start at one megawatt and go to five, go to 10, go to 50. And that sort of history has occurred a lot in, in Australia's coal seam gas history. Um, we know some of the, the companies who did that, both as owners of the gas resource and the and the engineering companies who built it. Um, in our license area, there's, there's pre-existing electricity transmission lines. The Mongolian grid needs new power. It needs cleaner power. And so there's really quite a good fit there for that sort of development. And, 
Okay. Um, just on the permeability, I mean, we, it, it, and I'm not quite sure who the other major players are in the region, but you know, what are the kind of average flow rates and, and production rates um, for these basins? So in in in, a, in Mongolia, we're the first one. Uh, in China, there's actually quite a large coal seam gas history, although some part of it is somewhat opaque, um, given just the general nature of the PRC, but also the various licenses um, which pertain there, some of which are higher tax or lower tax. And uh, um, But it, it's really quite a large sector. And because costs are low in China, as they are in Mongolia, the, the economic um, flow rate before something's commercial is, is pretty low, certainly much lower than it would be in Australia. Um, so it might be 100,000 cubic feet per day. Uh, we, we believe that with the permeability we got in our last core hole, that sort of rate should easily be capable of being surpassed, although that's obviously speculative at this stage. And, and what's the, what's the drop-off? So, I mean, a coal gas well can produce for, for, for 20 or so years. Um, typically, it would ramp up for, say, a year, have a, have a plateau for, say, three or four years, and then gradually go down over the, the balance of 15 years. Okay, okay. And um, how much is that selling for? I'm just trying to get some numbers to do some calculations. So what, what, what was it selling for over in China? So, I mean, ga gas into China um, has a number of different pricing systems, and, and they're typically opaque. The most visible ones are what is the price of landed LNG? Um, that's linked to, largely to the price of oil, uh, and at current low oil prices, that might be 6 or $7. There's also LNG spot markets, which right now are lower, but which in the past have been higher. There's gas that comes from Russia and Turkmenistan and the other stands, and that those prices are confidential, but they'll be in the region of 8 or $9. And typically, a longer-term LNG price would be also in the region of 8 or $9. And, and the, the, the unit of measurement I'm talking here is like a BTU or a gigajoule or, or a 1,000 cubic feet, which all tend to be the same. Right. So where do you, where would you be? I'm, I, look, we're way, way ahead of ourselves here. You've got a lot of work to do. I'm just, but again, trying to understand yeah. the potential for the market here, which is, would you be selling at wellhead or landed? In which case, what's the net back to you guys? I mean, what's the expectation on your, your forecasted numbers? So I think that really depends on who owns the asset at that point. If it's an integrated China player, say, say a PetroChina or a CNOC, they would uh, do things one way. If it was a shell, they would might do it in partnership with a company like that, uh, or they could sell X wellhead to a pipeline company, or they could participate in the pipeline. If it, if we were st were still in, we'll be we'll be largely guarded by a larger larger player. But you know, it, when it comes to the development stage of a large resource and it's billions of dollars. Um, it's going to de depend on the circumstances okay. we don't of the know. time. We don't, we don't know. Okay, that, that, that's fair yeah. enough. Um, so let's come back to your plan then. So your plan is to you know, continue, continue drilling, trying to get an understanding of what this current basin um, looks like. Put some feelers out for, for a strategic partner uh, with a decent-sized balance sheet and, and see see where that conversation leads you. Um, uh, between your one-year or two-year or three-year timeline for for that um, partner coming in you're going to need to raise more capital to you know, move this thing along so this 10 million bucks or potential 10 million bucks that's going to last you what for the next 12 months or two years or what's the i'd, I'd say more, more like two years given the low cost nature of of, of our operations and right okay okay so there's no there's no kind of major infrastructure uh, that you're going to need to 
pay for. If, if we were to go down, for instance, the power plant route, then we would see third party capital being um, available for that. Um, in, in countries like Mongolia, there are international financial institutions like the EBRD and the ADB who have typically funded those sorts of ventures and would see merit in, for instance, a gas plant, which would take a bit of the burden off the coal-fired fleet in the country, which is quite polluting, uh, and so would tend to meet their mandate of, of greening up the energy sector. Right, okay. Right, so you're painting a picture, and, and that, would be, that, wouldn't have, that wouldn't affect you in the sense that you're saying we, you wouldn't need to dilute. That would be done with someone like an EBRD in, in some kind of venture, which is non-dilutory to your shareholders, that what you're trying to say? Yeah, we'd, we'd like to direct our capital solely to the subsurface and then have on-surface infrastructure um, owned by third parties, be it, be it the IFIs or, or infrastructure owners of, of whatever shape or form. Okay. So when you, when you guys, when you know Richard and you have a chat about this, um, it, it's all kind of plain sailing and uh, quite, quite easy, isn't it? There's no, um, no, there's no issues. We're, we're like a duck swimming on the water. It's, uh, we, we glide along, and, uh, but there's a, there's a little bit of uh, uh, motor power happening underneath and dealing with issues and, and driving us in the right direction. Right, so what, what are those issues? What are the things, that, what's the small fires that you're putting out each day? Well, I, I, I tend to think that for a company like ours, there's basically three buckets of things. There's, there's one, if you're listed, you've got to deal with your, your current and potential future owners frequently and all the time. Um, you also have to conduct your operations, uh, and we've discussed that earlier. Uh, thirdly, you have to, to deal with the, the fact that you're in a host nation, which is not your own, and which is, is, is not a, uh, an Australia or America in terms of its degree of familiarity or its uh, maturity of, of institutions. Um, so, so those three all, 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 I think, come together as, as the three areas which we're furiously paddling um, either with or without the tide, depending on, on events on each particular day. Oh, but tell, tell me about bucket number two, because that's the one that interests me. It seems to be most fraught with risk uh, uh, in, in the sense that, you know, you, you don't know what's underground, like all miners. So um, yep. the, what are the discussions between you and Richard or you and whoever, uh, presumably Stephen, um, on a technical basis, how how do you go about something where you deploy your capital? You know, what are what are the options and debates? I mean, that's the that's a kind of interesting bit to shareholders because they're like, okay, um, these guys are experienced. These guys have been working in country. Or, you know, um, Richard's case, he he knows how to build a, a gas company. So, what are the discussions that go on between you? So on 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 the technical side, we. We start with, with less data than, for instance, one would have in Asturias, where there's a more mature industry. But we, we do have data from coal mining and coal exploration activities, and that differentiates coal seam gas from, from conventional oil and gas, which the two the twain never really meet. So we do have a starting da- database. Um, we, now for instance, we have gravity graviometry, graviometry work, which BHP paid for, when they were in Mongolia back in the 90s. And that's, that's an extensive database, which we have to pay for, would be pretty expensive, but which was, became available to us. Um, so we start with that. That gives us areas to target. Then we go and we do field uh, exploration work, uh, which, for instance, found the expressions of coal that we drilled on successfully that I mentioned earlier. 
We then follow on with, with seismic in, in the suggested areas from the first two activities. And then the, those three things added together will suggest drilling locations. And then we have the various types of drilling that I described earlier. Uh, and so what that does is build up firstly one which we've got, hopefully two, three, four, five, six, however many sub-basins will, will add up to a large resource. And then as and when those can be connected, they could be a sufficient resource to underwrite a significant pipeline investment. Um, and, and on the journey to that, we would have the smaller scale offtakes for power gen or, or other local uses um, uh, as we described. Okay. I mean, how many Australian com public companies are successfully operating in Mongolia currently? Um, the obvious one is Rio Tinto. Um, uh, the, there are about three other listed companies presently um, on the ASX operating in, in Mongolia. There have been more in the past. Um, interestingly, in the oil and gas sector, um, a company called Rock Oil was in Mongolia in the 90s and it sold out to um, Sinopec. Um, LSE listed um, Soko was in Mongolia, discovered oil and sold out to PetroChina. Um, so now there's clear precedence of oil and gas companies finding things and then selling them on to substantially larger companies who, who can develop them. Um, uh, so, yeah, as I said, the, there are a number of Australian companies, Xanadu Mines, uh, Aspar Mining, and there are also some uh, who are sort of following in our footsteps, uh, should I say, but are not quite, quite, quite there yet in terms of various approvals they need. Okay. So the, re the rest of this year, um, more of the same. What should people be looking out for? What's the next big thing? So we're, we're drilling a well as we speak, and then we plan to drill another, say, two or three wells um, prior to, to the end of the year. Um, I mean, this is, this is drilling. As you say, the subsurface uh, can be capricious and uh, not every well can be guaranteed to be a success. But I would, you know, if, if one or two of them do um, come up with positive results, then that just is the continual buildup of successful um, outcomes, which uh, goes to the process of de-risking that um, we discussed earlier. And, and what are those thresholds? Just so I understand, I want to understand what success looks like in the future for you. So, okay, not all wells will hit. Some will be dusters or uneconomic or, you know, yeah. they won't, won't, won't hit the standards that you're looking for. So what, what do you think that ratio is in terms of success to failure in terms of drill? And, you know, what are you looking for? What should we be looking for when you, you know, come out with results uh, later this year? I'd say a rough rule of thumb is that one out of two exploration wells will fail. Um, maybe um, uh, three out of four appraisal wells will work, but one, one won't. Um, production testing um, uh, it's not been done here before, so it's hard to, to, to put a risk onto it, but I'd say it's certainly more than 50-50 that that will deliver a positive outcome. Um, so I, I think those would be the rough, the rough parameters. And, and how do you define um, technical success versus economic success? I'd say in the, the, the cheapest um, um, exploration wells, which are just designed to measure stratigraphy, we want to find a package of coal below a certain depth and above a certain thickness. And typically that depth will be below two or 300 meters and probably anything that's thicker than 10 meters is, is not a bad result. Um, in the, the core hole wells, which measure additional parameters, um, we also want to measure gas content. Now we've measured on a final basis about nine cubic meters a ton 
per date. I'd say probably half that would still be economic. Then in terms of permeability, um, we have had some you know, a mix of results ranging from the fantastic to the to to the to the relatively poor, but even the relatively poor can be economic if combined with thick coals with reasonable gas content, because one can apply techniques such as fracking or or or, or differently drilled wells. They could be horizontal wells, which um, in Australia and and the states, for example, do deliver economic wells from tighter formations. Okay, and and I guess given that you're kind of the first one doing this in Mongolia, you'll, you'll let us know. As as you progress, you know wh- whether or not that will work. Te- you know whether that technical solution will work or not. So okay, you've given us some criteria by which to judge you in the future, which is fantastic. That's what we're looking for, because we're trying to sort of see if you can continue to deliver what you say you're going to deliver. So I'm, I'm excited to uh, hear back from you later this year or, or, or beginning of next to see how you're getting on. Thank you very much, Neil. I always look forward to it. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to CruxCast or our website, cruxinvestor.com, and of course, our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus, you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming, and we'll speak to you again soon.